is up, everybody, and welcome to a very unconventional episode of the Not A Real Libertarian podcast. As you can see, my uh, typical background is not behind me today because I'm in the office and we are pre-recording on a Friday morning, and you will see this video whenever we decide so. But let's bring on my wonderful co-host, the founder of the Not A Real Libertarian Network, in his office, not bootleg morning it's friday morning i just i have to do it it's just ingrained into me now um yeah like will said we're uh we're we're not in our usual little hidey holes i'm not in my uh theoretical mom's basement just ranting about politics today i'm in my my mom's pickup truck not really it's mine but (laughs) but but yeah we've got an awesome episode going on tonight um we've got the amazing hannah cox she is graced us with her presence and has decided that she's going to suffer through us two assholes for a while and uh yeah and dude i think this is probably because i had the opportunity to meet hannah at the oklp convention you met hannah at your state convention i think this is probably the first guest we've ever had that both of us have actually known prior to the podcast that's kind of cool yeah i think so i actually didn't speak to hannah at the lptn convention it was actually jennifer uh miss kaiser she was like, hey, do you want Hannah Cox's phone number? I was like, uh, I guess. And she's like, okay. And she runs off, comes back a minute later, got the business card and numbers and email and all that. I was like, oh, that's cool. So, Jenny, when you see this live, we love you and thank you for everything you do for our show. You're the best. Yeah, she she set this whole thing up pretty much. So we, we do appreciate you. Man. For sure. So we're going to skip ad reads since this is an unconventional episode. <laughs> salute to Jenny, the real boss behind the do, scenes. Do the, do the French salute. I, I will not do that, but I like <laughs> the idea. Um, but let's, without further ado, bring our guest on because that's what this show is all about. Welcome, <laughs> not Hannah. <laughs> not Hannah Cox, just an impersonator. <laughs> already playing along the rules, already playing with the game. I love it. Good to be here, guys. And it was so good getting to meet you, Will, in Oklahoma. Um, and I'm sorry we didn't cross paths officially in Tennessee, but I like that you had little minions out working for you. That's that's a good way to run your business. I want minions. He's got a lot of those. Yeah. I need to get more minions in my life. <laughs> do you have any minions? Does anybody, do you have any staff or anybody work for you yet? It's just my boyfriend, honestly. Like, he does a lot for me. But... That's awesome. I don't really have any minions, though. No. I mean, I have a lot of people that do a lot for me in, in all seriousness. And, and I will, I always have to shout out Brad Plumbo because he's my business partner and really close colleague. And I depend on him for so much. So um, Jack Hunter does a ton for us behind the scenes. And, and we also have an amazing board at Base Politics now. We have Matt Kibbe on our board. We have Richard Lorenc on our board. So we've got some heavy hitters who are giving their time to us. Um, so there's a lot of people that really do chip in behind the scenes to help make what we're doing possible that deserve a lot of credit. Yeah. So, I guess you'll, you'll agree with this statement too, is that, you know, it, it's, it's fun going in front of the camera and talking, but it's really the people who work behind the scenes who really, you know, really do a lot of the heavy lifting. Like Jennifer makes all the memes and, and Carly is the, you know, she's the producer for everything. She, she's the one that yells at us for when we do something wrong. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of great people that work behind the scenes with a lot of this stuff. And they are really the true champions of all this. 
Yeah, that's so true. And I, I kind of, I go back and I laugh because when I first started doing video work, I didn't have a team. And as I was telling you guys, when we got on this call, I am a total tech boomer. I joke about it all the time, but I'm not joking. I'm actually really stupid at tech. Like it, it's just one of those things where I feel like I can be very smart in all these areas. And then you get one where you're just an actual imbecile and mine's tech. So I, when I first started doing base was totally on my own. I was doing it like from my, actually from my parents' basement, because I had moved there to get out of New York city during COVID and the tech behind it was terrible. I mean, the audio is terrible. The visual is terrible. It worked, right? It got it off the ground. But looking at where it started to where it is now that I have like a whole team of people at sea that are actual professionals at lighting and videography and like editing, it's just amazing to see the difference. And, and there is so much that goes into as a whole creating a brand, creating content. There's a lot of people that are needed behind the scenes. And I say that all the time. I often hear people say like, I want to get involved in the movement, I want to make an impact, but I don't feel like I can do what you're doing. I don't want to be on stage. I don't want to be in the limelight. And I'm like, no, there's, there's so many people who want to be in the limelight. We need more people actually that are willing to be support that are willing to do things behind the scenes. And, and they're, I would say every bit is not more important than who you actually see as the final product in front of you. So true. I know with the OKLP, I'm the chair now and all I do is pretty much speak and run a few things, but everybody else actually carries the weight and does all the organization and all the work. And it's just hilarious that I get to like stand up and take a microphone and just have that privilege because of all of their heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, I think real leadership requires being able to convince people that they want to work for you and work around you and, and creating a team that has talent. And, and so we need more of that in our movement. I That's one criticism I've actually had of the libertarian movement is we have so such a strong sense of individualism, which is great, but we don't often learn how to like play well with others, how to collaborate, how to come together and get things done. And since I didn't really start off doing media, I didn't start off being this like persona that was in the public eye. I was actually one of those people behind the scenes. I was getting stuff done. I was building coalitions. I was editing. I was making videos, telling people stories, finding stories to advance public policy and really um, having to reach across the aisle most of the time in order to get the things done that I wanted to. And so it taught me how to play really well with Democrats and Republicans. And I've learned that if you can play well with them, you can tend to play pretty well with libertarians as a whole as well. So did you want to kind of explain to people what it is, uh, you know, your organization is and what it does and, you know, kind of why you started it? Yeah, sure. So I just launched Base Politics officially as a brand in December, but I'll actually take you back a little bit further. I have been thinking about Base and kind of dreaming about Base since 2016, because like I said, I was doing this work at the state level. I was passing bills. I was building coalitions. But what the left calls organizing and the right just typically doesn't actually do is what I was doing for the right and for the libertarian kind of movement and apparatus. And through that work, I was really getting to know people who were different than me, which is so key. I talk about this at all the libertarian conventions I've been going to this year, but I was really getting to know a lot of Democrats, which I previously really hadn't, to be totally honest. I grew up kind of in my bubble, social, conservative, evangelical, Southern. And as I was getting to know them and actually hear them talk about issues, I started recognizing that we really weren't as far off as it seemed, that we actually agreed on a lot of the problems that we saw in the world and that we saw in the political system, but we would start having these conversations and then their solution to those problems, those issues that we agreed upon, would be more of what created them in the first place, right? Like government regulation, government intervention. And I recognized pretty quickly that the reason for that is that they didn't actually have a solid understanding of where these problems came from. And I felt like I did. 
And, and that's something that I just think, um, you know, I've, I've had kind of a privilege of, of working on so many public policies of really getting to intrinsically understand public policy in a way that a lot of people really don't get to experience. And so I wanted to create a show where I could hopefully bring together lots of people from a big umbrella, umbrella kind of perspective and talk about these issues where we agreed on the problem, but help them trace back the history and the public policy decisions and the economic factors that created them so that they could better understand how to prescribe solutions to them. Because if you don't understand the root of a problem, you're going to pick the wrong solution to go after it. And so that's why it's called base. I wanted people to understand the base of the problem. Um, I wanted them to have a, a basic set of principles and knowledge that they could operate on to where they wouldn't have to be told how to think by political parties or by even me, where they would have that ability to then approach other issues on their own and kind of do that same um, process of breaking them apart and figuring out what went wrong. And then obviously based this slang for being very upfront and truthful and on point. And so it was kind of a play on words in that sense. So I finally got to launch base during the pandemic. Um, as I said, I had been lobbying, I'd been passing bills, I was traveling all the time, I had virtually no time for content creation, I was on social media, I had a column at Newsmax, but that was really it. When the pandemic happened, the top employer I worked for at the time, I was running a right wing um, nonprofit called Concerta's Concerned About the Death Penalty, but it was owned by a more left-wing company called Equal Justice USA. And their response to the pandemic was what you would think it would be, right? They shut us down. They wouldn't let us travel. They wouldn't let me go do my job. They were still paying me, but they were paying me to sit on my couch. And I'm a very industrious person. I was pretty bored with that. And so I had a lot of time on my hands that basically allowed me to launch base. And the show really started growing pretty quickly. It, it really kind of took off as a brand. And I recognized quickly that there was more to this because as I was getting more and more into it, you know, my thought was, I'm going to launch the show. It'll get picked up by a big outlet and, and this will keep growing. But as I got further into it, I realized what outlet we don't have these outlets in the libertarian world, right? If you're on the right, you have Prager U, you have the Daily Wire, you have the Daily Caller, you have Fox News, you have all these like right wing outlets that are looking for content. They're looking to support people who are pushing those narratives on the left. You have equivalents to that, like the Daily Beast and Vox and Young Turks. We don't have that in the liberty movement. And I started noticing that a lot of our talent was seeping out of our apparatus, that people would come in and they'd be passionate and they'd be great messengers, but they'd end up leaving. Um, and they'd end up even either moving to the right or moving to the left because that's where the jobs are. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a market problem, that we don't have this infrastructure to support the media talent that we need. And for me, as somebody who's passed a lot of bills, I can tell you firsthand, you have to have the media. That's the only way I was ever able to get things done. It's because I knew how to effectively use the media, use storytelling and use new media, especially not just the old traditional media, but really utilize online platforms in order to educate people about the issues, to galvanize support um, among the grassroots and oftentimes to make the support for our issue look bigger than it was. Um, and this is really key when you're trying to get things done at the state level, especially on issues like the death penalty. Now we would have a good bit of supporters. Did we have thousands and thousands of people at state legislatures that were passionate about this issue? No, and neither did the other side. But we were able to use the media to lift up voices who were impacted by it and make it feel like there was a really big coalition that was kind of coalescing around this. And that then put pressure on the lawmakers to take action or gave them the courage to take action, right? Because they felt like they had a lot of people behind them. That's the other thing that our movement lacks. We don't have 
the ability to go in and use the media. And we often don't even have the outlets. You know, I worked within the state policy network. I worked within kind of the, the Coke Liberty movement. And I've seen all of these organizations, they'll hire full teams of comms people and they'll spend their days pitching to different outlets, trying to get one op-ed placed. And they'll maybe get 15 op-eds placed a year. I mean, it's nothing, you know, and, wow. and it's really hard to elevate the issues that we care about and that we're working on without that. And so, you know, you've got reason, you've got fee to some extent, although fee doesn't really do firsthand reporting. And so what I really started to recognize is that there was a need for base politics to expand the show based and really kind of make it something bigger um, because I'm fine. I have a career. I've been very fortunate in that, but I look around and there's a lot of people I want to have careers too. We need more voices than just mine. We need many kinds of people saying the same thing, right? Because different people can connect with different audiences, have different ways of speaking about subjects. And, and as a whole, we need a lot of influencers and content creators out there educating people on our message. And so Brad Palumbo and I decided to launch Base Politics as a full network in December. It has a website, which is basedstaffpolitics.com, that's going to be like the content creation hub, right? Everything's going towards independent journalism, towards influencers. That's who people want to hear from. We're not losing that. What we want to have is base politics as a hub for young libertarian content creators to come and, and write articles, but also make TikToks, make Instagram reels, make YouTube videos, make memes, make content that can actually get in front of younger generations and move the needle. Um, and also within doing that, teach them how to not only build large social media followings and make good content, but how to create content and use your platform in a way that actually affects change and gets public policy done at the end of the day. And so that's what base politics is going to be. We're really excited. Like I said, we're still in our initial startup phase. We actually are um, working to get our IRS filing done right now, but we just signed a agreement with a sponsor organization, Think Freely Media. So we're now able to take donations even as we wait and we're really about to get up and running. But right now we've just been doing this nights and weekends. We've already had over a half million people on the website during that time in the past, you know, three, four months, we've had over a hundred thousand people listening to the podcast. So it's really already taken root. We know that once we get some money up and going behind it, we're, we're going to be ready to hit the ground running and, and hopefully start contracting out with other content creators as well. Hannah, have you thought about running for LNC chair? Because we, uh, we're having a big problem with that right now. And I don't know. You, you've got to seem to have a really good balance between being a speaker and somebody who's charismatic, but also having a really good organizational mind and knowing how things are supposed to work. I appreciate that. I have not thought about running for office in the past five years. Um, I initially uh -huh. thought when I got into politics that I would, but I... I have to say, and I know this, this is kind of a, I hate to say it out loud, to be honest, because I don't want to dissuade other people. Like, I think we need people who are passionate about running for office. I am simply not anymore because I've seen what goes on behind the scenes. And to be honest, I, if I felt like I could make a bigger difference being in office, that's where I'd go. But I am a hundred percent convinced I can make a much bigger difference doing this, what I'm doing right now, which is essentially using the media to advocate on public policy and, and hopefully get things done at the state level issue by issue. That's fair. Yep. One thing, I mean, so one thing you kind of, I guess you kind of touched on a little bit, um, you know, anyone, so this is, I guess, like a, a buzz phrase or whatever, but, you know, everyone, or a lot of people who watch and know these things know that culture is upstream from politics. So the culture kind of determines the politics. Well, what determines the culture? A lot of that is like what you were talking about, you know, like YouTube videos or the news or TikToks, whatever is cool in that, uh, that time uh, frame. And so having content like that, that's libertarian leaning or libertarian based or whatever, that is a huge thing because 
it, we do have to start reaching younger generations and having good content is how you do that. So I, that's awesome. I'm super glad that you're doing that stuff. Um, and Matt Kibbe's a huge name as well. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, also, I'm glad to see y'all are uh, doing the good work. Yeah, so, it really matters. And if you go on TikTok right now, you'll see the other side's out in force, right? They are all over TikTok. They're pushing the socialist agenda and there's nothing countering it. And the problem, again, comes down to the fact that most people don't understand what created problems. Most people don't really understand public policy. And so if you hear people saying like, this is a capitalist country and these are the problems under capitalism, who's pushing back on that and saying, no, these are the problems created by the government interfering in our capitalist system and moving us away from capitalism, right? People don't even know what these terms mean. What they know is that things are messed up. And on that, we can agree on things are really messed up in this country. But let me show you who the real culprit is, right? We've got to be out there with that message. I think the issue that I run into, and I think every libertarian run into, runs into, is that people aren't necessarily interested in, in digging into the depths of real solutions because they are deep and they are complicated. Um, and Thomas Sowell has a really good quote where he's talking about simple economic theories like Marxism and stuff. And he said the reason academics are attracted to that is because it puts everything in a box and it's simple and it's easy to wrap your mind around, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. Um, so, yeah, do you run into that as a libertarian where you start going into these solutions and then people start falling asleep? Yeah, I think that sometimes we um, as libertarians look like that man with like all the masks behind him on the wall. They scribble all over and we're like, look, like, pay attention. It's like we just go too far. Right. We know too much. And, and I get it. But I think some restraints needed. And I think um, helping people again start down the pathway. And that's kind of been my goal. I'm not here to show you everything I've seen. You have the internet. I'm not here to be your research assistant. You know, I'm here to kind of point people and guide them so that they can hopefully start looking into things a bit more deeply. But I think more um, importantly is that we need to teach people how to think. And, and that's something that people aren't getting in America, largely thanks to our government monopoly on schools, where there's no intention of teaching people to think. You know, I, I had a really unique um, educational pathway. I was homeschooled. Uh, entirely until I was in fifth grade. And that was actually surprisingly not because of my parents being religious, which they are, but because my mom got her teaching degree in Alabama and some people in her class were absolutely illiterate. Like no exaggeration, like a girl that was graduating wow. with her was illiterate and was going to be teaching public school in Alabama. And my mom was just like, you know, they didn't have a lot of money, but she was like, my daughter's not doing this. And so she made the decision to homeschool us, which was a huge sacrifice for my family. My dad was a pastor, like they didn't have extraordinary means that my mom decided to stay home and do that. And then um, I went partially to school, sixth through eighth grade. They had these schools in Kentucky. We had moved to Kentucky by that point that were really popular called cottage schools, where you would go two days a week and wear a uniform. You'd go to classes. You'd take your test, like everything like a private school. But then you homeschooled the other three days. So it was kind of like huh. homeschooling help, basically, as, as you got older and had more subjects so that your parents could balance all the different things. And then I went to private school, ninth and tenth grade. And then we moved to South Carolina. And my mom just put us all in public school. <laughs> I just gave up and like we all went to public school. So I kind of got to see like run the gamut of experiences of education in this country. And by the time I got to public school, it was shocking to me, you know, what they were doing. I mean, I barely worked at all. They were covering material I'd covered in eighth grade. They were covering very basic things. Whereas in um, my cottage school that I went to, I was having to take Latin. I actually took logic as a class. I was having to like map the world based on latitude and longitude, like just I don't even know why, but like very intensive curriculum. And and so I really kind of saw what it was like to have an education where people wanted you to learn how to think, where you were challenged. And the focus was on like really strengthening you and, and making you somebody who was inquisitive and who knew how to poke holes in things and, and well-researched. And then you get to public school where it's just like, think this, 
follow this, think this. And, and increasingly, you know, as I look back on that time, when I graduated college and I started working my first nine to five, I hated it. I couldn't stand that I had to sit at a desk from nine to five. I was really just like depressed about it. And people didn't understand why I was having such a hard time, but it's because I wasn't indoctrinated to do that as a kid. I wasn't basically, you know, made to do that from the time I was a little kid. And I think it's, it's meant to make people complacent, not think. So what we have to do if we want to sway people is come in and give them those, those skill sets that they're largely missing in their educational pathways and teach them, you know, how to, how to actually think. And it, it, it's not something I say to be demeaning at all, but it's just something we have to recognize that most people have been taught what to think and not how to think. Yeah. And that is a good point. So I'll, I'll bring up something that's kind of hot topic in the news right now, um, which is, you know, the Roe v. Wade opinion uh, that's coming out of the Supreme Court that's got leaked. Uh, everybody's fighting over like this one particular item, right? But they don't talk about all the other issues with with uh, with children in the United States. So that no one talks about the the absorb like the astronomical cost that it costs to adopt a child in the United States. You're talking mm-hmm. anywhere from ten grand up, um, yep. whether that's domestically adopting or internationally adopting. Um, and and so when you really pin someone down and say, hey, why are you pro-abortion or against abortion? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, blah blah blah. And then you pin them down and start saying, hey, well, why don't we focus on this as well? I mean, these are better solutions than, you know, me personally, I'll always open up with me personally. I don't think abortion is a viable solution. However, I don't force my beliefs on other people to do what you want. But, you know, then you start talking about other options and people start kind of having those thought processes. You know, you do the same thing with like the, the quote unquote border crisis, you know, yeah, okay, one side wants open borders, the other side wants to close it all off or whatever, build a wall, whatever the hell you want to call it. But mm-hmm. and then and then you start talking about base solutions like you were talking about, like getting to the root problem. You get them to the root problem on one topic, I think they start looking at things a little bit differently. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And when it comes to things like abortion, you know, I, I really do think if you look at what's happened with abortion in the past couple of decades, it's actually proof of what we always say, which is that the free market is going to solve things faster than the government ever could. You know, I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro-life. I'm also not pro the government being involved in healthcare whatsoever or really ever dictating what somebody does with their body. And I think abortion is a really messy, nuanced issue, to be totally honest. I don't think that it's a black and white issue. I don't think it's easy solutions like both sides want to pretend it does. Um, And therefore, it's something I think the government should have nothing to do with because government is the last entity that should be deciding messy, nuanced, complicated issues. But what we have seen is that the free market's already been doing that by coming in and and making contraceptions more readily available, by advancing the technology behind them, by providing better education. We have already seen a drastic decrease in abortions across this country because why? Because we're addressing the main reasons people have them, right, which is that formerly they didn't have the means to enjoy themselves without ensuring that they could protect themselves from getting pregnant, right? Increasingly, that's no longer true, and you can. There's things like Plan B, like there's a lot of options out there, and I think what we should be doing is trying to make those things more readily available. We should be trying to ensure that um, we are providing people the education they need. And then to your point, we should also be looking at how do we bring down the cost of having a kid? Because we know that the vast majority of people who have an abortion are poor, right? It's not not any um, accident that there's this correlation there. It's obviously people who are mostly having abortions who cannot afford to bring a child into the world and give them the life that they want. And so we need to start pointing to the reasons that that is, you know, look at the cost of childcare. 
childcare is astronomically expensive in this country, and that directly um, traces its way back to government interventions into the daycare and childcare market. Uh, we need to look at things like inflation, right? That's been directly caused by progressive spending and printing policies, and on and on it goes. But if we actually want to limit abortion, what we should be doing instead of trying to ban it and force people to have pregnancies, which is never going to work, it's just going to create a black market and, and likely lead to even more deaths as a result, we should be trying to address the root causes, again, of why people get abortions and answering those. I think I love that you say that. And I really want to touch on what you hit on earlier about just understanding other people's thought processes and the people on the other side. And you even posted, I think this morning, just about how the right tends to understand the left's arguments a lot more than vice versa. Um, have you ever read, do you, do you like Jonathan Haidt? Have you ever read The Righteous Mind? Yeah, part, not all of it, but yes, I do. I do like his writing. But I think I think you've already probably come to the conclusions that that book helps people come along to. Um, but I just think that that's so important. And I also completely agree with the Roe versus Wade thing. Just the fact that both sides are so um, closed minded to the other side's opinions and just refuse to see the nuance and the gray in it and, and treat it like black and white is such a problem. Um, so how do you, with BASE and the Hannah Cox brand, marry those two groups and, and try to kind of be neutral enough to reach them? Yeah, I think that I've really been able to build a diverse audience. And I'm very proud of that fact that I have, you know, I have avowed socialists in my audience. I have progressives who regularly reach out to me and see my content and, and don't agree with everything, but appreciate it. And on the other hand, I have people who are, you know, all the way MAGA who, who are out there on, on the other side. And I think that one thing that has been helpful is that I've always been fair. Um, I'm not somebody who really is bombastic. I'm really not a very emotional person. And so when I'm criticizing things, it's very much from a like principled, I'm going to toe this line kind of um, way of thinking. And I think my audience has learned over time that I'm going to call a spade a spade. You know, if I agree with Bernie Sanders on something, I'm going to say so. If I disagree with Ron DeSantis on something, I'm going to say so. And I'm going to do it in a consistent way. And I'm going to do it in a way that attacks what they're saying, not who they are, not them as people. And I think that that stems from the fact that like, I genuinely like people on all sides of the aisle. And that's one thing we've lost in our culture is that everybody hates everybody. And, and I really don't. I, I have friends who are progressives. I, I worked with a lot of, you know, very far left people in criminal justice reform, and I care deeply about them. And, and I understand them and I understand their perspectives and where they're coming from. And we differ on, on where we get with solutions. But and, and same thing, you know, on the right, I, I grew up Southern Baptist minister's kids, Southern, very, um, very evangelical, conservative kind of household. So I really know those people and I, I understand where they come from as well. And so I think that makes me a better messenger in the sense that I really do know and like both sides. And again, that I keep it really um, sort of just neutral, calling a spade a spade. These are my principles. I'm not aligned with parties. And I think that's actually a, a breath of fresh air for people because most people don't like the two parties. I mean, honestly, even according to polling, it's a really small percentage of people who are just like die hard and either camp in this country. And, and most people kind of end up falling with one or the other just because they hate the other one more. But really where most Americans is, is, is really kind of in this middle ground. And so hearing somebody who can actually speak to things from a non-tribalistic perspective, I think is, is just something people are hungry for, honestly. Yeah, that is something I think uh, Will and uh, Tony DeRazio touched on last night was that you know, even in the LP, we see that, right? You, you see the you see the extremes on one side, the extreme on the other side, <clears throat> but you see the majority of people in the middle. And it's a, it's a, really, realistically, it's those people in the middle who are getting screwed in all this because they're the ones that just want to live their life. But the other two sides, like the two extremes are fighting for absolute power to oppress the rest of, you know, the, the middle and the other side. And it is, it is sad. And 
Yeah, yeah, like something you were talking about earlier. I've I've talked regularly to an anarcho-communist. Um, it's a good, they're a good friend of mine. We don't say each other's names because you know, you, as an anarcho-communist, if you talk that, if you say anything good about an anarcho-capitalist, then you're shunned. And same thing with a lot of people I know. And it's there are really good people on all sides of the aisle. I mean, it's it's just about reaching out and finding someone who you can agree with to disagree with and having those discussions. Like I have a lot of really private discussions about like politics and stuff like that. And it helps me, it helps them. I mean, I, I fully encourage anybody to, to find and have friends on that believe very differently than you in politics. It, it helps you build your arguments. Number one, and number two, it helps you become a better person. Absolutely. I think it's very enriching. One thing I've benefited from immensely is um, in college, before I was ever even really political, I was getting a music business degree, but I was political. I was like talking about politics a lot on my Facebook and this girl um, on campus who was known for being like a big political science person, big Democrat, you know, activist, asked me to lunch one day and I was like, oh God, she's going to yell at me. <laughs> so I went and she said, um, I think you should be in politics. I was like, what? And she was like, you, you really got a good voice for it. You're very knowledgeable. You're more knowledgeable, knowledgeable than a lot of people in the political, political science department. I think you should look into this. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going into music. Like I'm not doing politics. And also like, I'm not even on your team. Why would you want this? You know? And she said, I, I really want to see good people out there who care about things. And, and she's become one of my best friends over the years. Her name's Amisha Cross. She's a, a media and democratic strategist on the left to this day. And I've learned so much from her over the years. She has broadened my perspective. She's really given me a lot of insights. And I, this is one of the relationships I value the most in, in my entire political apparatus. And I think it's so important that you have, again, not only people that you know that are different than you, but like intimately know, right? Like really close friends. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just, I, I couldn't replace that relationship with anything else I can think of. I think something that is really unique about kind of your strategy and approach to things that libertarians need to hear more often is the focus on people. And the more I've gotten into politics and learned things at the upper level, the more I realize that my knowledge of politics is actually really useless in politics. But being able to listen to people and understand them and work with them is, is significantly more important. So, yeah, what have you found just kind of along those lines? I know you talk about Dale Carnegie a lot and that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a, one of my favorite podcasts is a show called um, Hidden Brain that's produced by NPR by a host named Sean Kirby Danton. And he's a um, scientist. He, he focuses a lot on psychology and sociology and the mind and why people do what they do. So I'm, I'm a big why person. My mom jokes that from the time I was speaking, my first word was why. And I was just why, why, why all the time. And I'm, I'm still that way. Like, I want to know why people do things, why people, why things are the way they are. And so when you're really curious about people and curious about what makes them tick, what they care about, I think it makes you better at politics because as this episode of Hidden Brain says, you know, he does this episode on politics and he, he says basically politics is about providing solutions to people's problems. If you think it's about anything else, you're in the wrong business, right? You can have all of the theory. You can sit in a room and talk about economics and, and all of these great thinkers and philosophy all you want. But nobody's going to care unless that leads to you giving them solutions to their problems. And so in order to do that, you have to know them. You have to know what their problems are. You have to know what their struggles are. You have to be able to um, understand them well enough to message to them. And, and I think you have to really be in the weeds enough to understand like what the various dynamics are that created, again, those problems. Because uh, I think a lot of people, again, like to think public policy is um, black and white as well, right? That you just come in. Um, like take abortion. We'll use this since it's at the forefront this week, but you know, that you just come in and you overturn abortion and people just stop having abortions because they can't get them. 
And it, it ignores this whole body of research on basic human behavior and, and what um, Casey's called um, praxeology, right? Like the study of human action and why people mm -hmm. do what they do. And in order to actually be good at advancing our way of, of beliefs, we have to be able to answer people's problems, which again would trace back to why do people get abortions? How do we actually handle this? You know, and, and from the pro-life perspective, you know, they never stop to really grapple with things like, okay, you say there should be exemptions for people who are victims of rape and incest. Let's say a 15 year old girl is molested, you know, by her father. What does she have to go on trial and prove that? We don't even test rape kits in this country. How would she even possibly get to that point in time to get a trial and come in and prove that, right? There's just so many logistical things that they don't even seem to think through at all. And it makes it very frustrating because public policy, it really involves a lot of ripple effects. And so when you're doing something, you have to be very intentional about thinking about, you know, what are what are the other repercussions that come from this? School choice is another example. I'm a huge proponent of school choice. But one thing we haven't answered is what about the busing? Right. You know, and that's something that I think is a huge obstacle to getting school choice done that people in our movement need to think more deeply about, because even if you give families this ESA, this education savings account, and they now have sixty five hundred dollars a year and they can afford their private school. A lot of them are working families, sometimes working two, three jobs. They cannot get their kid to and from. They don't have aftercare oftentimes, whereas public schools might. There's still other steps that we have to think about of like what gets person here with this problem to take this jump over here where I'd like them to be we have to think more deeply about those things. And again, if you don't know people, you don't know that's their problem, right? Like I didn't grow up in that kind of household. I never rode a bus in my life. Like how would I possibly know that something people are struggling with and that might not make them, might lead them to not be that enthusiastic about this policy that I want them to support unless I know them and I'm talking to them. Yeah, and one other thing, like what you had talked about, you know, the, the kind of, I guess the waiver, um, for so that's like the big talking point from a lot of republicans is like yeah you know if you get raped or whatever you should be allowed to get the abortion but if you look at like and this comes back down to people not doing their own research or not finding the root cause of this stuff the, i think that the stat and i could be wrong it's been a while since i've seen it but it's like two in ten women uh who actually get raped and conceive a child are actually the ones that are getting or would get an abortion so two in ten so eight of them are just willing to carry it to full term so even that's not even even a good argument anymore because the the stats aren't there and it's just I guess it's just frustrating and I, I assume that you feel a lot of the same way for a lot of that is that people just refuse to look at what information has been out for a long time and is screaming at us in the face like hey these these solutions we're trying they've been trying to push for the last hundred years aren't working um, you know we've got to find something better. And it seems like that's what you're doing and what you uh, and all of them over there based are doing. And it's awesome. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's, there's just so much good information out there that people are ignoring or just refuse to use. Yeah. I've often said that, you know, there's tons of good data out there. And if you're a data driven person, you are probably going to make a lot better policy decisions, but you also have to accept that most people aren't Americans are bad at math. They don't want your numbers. <laughs> That's not how you're going to get them. Um, and what we have to do, if you are good at data, if you are good at math, if you are good at researching, is find ways to be more entertaining and getting that information in front of people. And I think that that's something we really lagged in is why I'm so passionate about content creation and media and using it to move the public because I've seen it work over and over. We need stories. We need examples. People don't remember data as a whole. They remember stories. They remember um, the, the actual kind of tangible things that are put in front of them. And the reality is, as much as we wish it wasn't true, people mostly formulate their politics based on emotional grounds. Um, they're not, you know, as a whole, they're not sitting there really thinking, why do I believe this? 
is this based in fact? Have I thought this thoroughly through? Some people are, but that's just not the majority of people. And I myself even used to be in that camp, you know, when I was first kind of toying around with politics, I've often said I was volunteering for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I cared a lot about mental health issues and I wanted to, I knew I never heard free market solutions proposed and I didn't know enough about the industry to propose them myself and I wanted to learn more about it. And so I started volunteering with them and it was throughout the course of that work that I was first asked to do death penalty work, right? They wanted an exclusion for people with severe mental illnesses from the death penalty. So we're talking schizophrenia, bipolar disorder with psychosis, the most severe mental illnesses, um, what the DSM would classify as like the big five. And I was like, mm, nope, <laughs> not working on that for you. Very, very pro death penalty. And they were shocked at that. They were like, but you hate government. And I was like, yeah. And, you know, I just had this entirely emotional based um, approach to crime in general that also applied to the death penalty. And I had I had no I'd never examined that whatsoever. But as they were asking me, like, why do you support this? You know, I was saying things like, well, if somebody murdered my family, I would want it, you know, or I think it prevents crime. I think it makes us safer. It was all very emotional and none of it was grounded. In fact, I had never even spoken to a murder victim's family member at that point. I had no idea that a lot of them are very opposed because they find the whole experience to be much more traumatizing in themselves and, and because they recognize that the money that gets wasted on the death penalty actually prevents them from getting some of the things they actually need in the after effects of crime. Um, but I, I was so just detached from that at that point that I had this very like un, unprincipled, unexamined view. And, and when I realized that, it was really a catalyst for me that then made me examine a whole lot of other things that I believed and really start looking to see like, is this grounded in reality? Is this grounded in data and facts, you know? And, um, and I'm really glad I had the experience early on in my career. I think I could have just been like another Republican hack, you know, running around out here that kind of went whichever way the party was going. But because I had that experience, it really made me early on, before I even worked in politics full time, figure out what I believed and why and really identify a set of principles by which I could approach public policies. And I continue to do that to this day where I really try to keep my emotions as best I can out of it, while also understanding that other people don't and that that's a messaging barrier you have to overcome. That makes perfect sense. How do you keep yourself pure knowing that if you if you wanted to be a Republican or a conservative voice only and you wanted to preach to those people and speak what they wanted to hear, you could probably spread a lot faster and exactly the same on the far left. So how do you stay true to your convictions um, every day, knowing that that could always be an option and a temptation? Yeah, that's a really great question because it is not easy, to be totally honest. Like I said, there I've, I've had to work really hard. Um, I feel like doubly hard to have the career I had because I wasn't willing to sell out, basically, and because there's not that many jobs doing what I do. I kind of had to build it. And um, I think one thing that helped is when I was first getting into politics, I had a good job. I worked full-time in music. I was very secure. I didn't need to go into politics. I just wanted to, but it, I had time, right? I didn't have to just take whatever was out there to support myself. And so I was able to be really picky and choosy about where I went. Um, and I had an experience early on when I was still working in music, I started working for a second amendment group on the side. And I was really excited because I love the second amendment, very passionate about it. And I didn't know that much about like politics at that time, right? Like I kind of assumed most Republicans were like me, that they actually wanted to limit government and believed in capitalism and, and believed in individual liberty. And as I was starting to work with this group, I was doing a lot of like grassroots around Tennessee. So a lot of Tea Party groups, you know, more Republican leaning groups. 
And as I was going around to them, I felt like a fish out of water because of the things that were being said to me, you know, even this is 2012, 2013, long before Trump, but I saw the origins of Trump that were already building there, you know, and it was very populist, very anti-immigrant, um, very anti-Muslim and, and just things where I was like, this is not what I believe. And if this is what Republicanism is, like, I can't do this. And, and I just think I have a strong moral compass in that regard. Um, I also think growing up as a pastor's kid probably instilled that in me because I grew up in a household where I didn't agree with a lot of what my family believed and, and what I was expected to believe as the pastor's kid in that role. And so for me, I just wasn't really willing to compromise who I was and what I thought. Um, and I didn't see any point in being in politics that wasn't to advance things I cared about and to really pursue more justice. Um, and so I made a commitment to myself before I ever moved into politics full time after working with the Second Amendment group. I quit after 11 months and I was like, I don't want to be associated with this. I'm out. And I told myself then and there, I will never again work anywhere or for anyone where I don't totally align with them. And that, again, made it hard to move into politics because in Tennessee, there was like one libertarian group. <laughs> so I had to kind of wait for like an opening to come around. And then from there, like, you know, figuring out how to move into different orgs, um, it, it was a process, but I'm really glad I stuck with it. And I, and I was tried on that almost immediately when I started working for Beacon. I finally moved into politics full time in January 2016. And I was pretty immediately approached by Ackerman and McQueen, which at the time was the PR hand, um, arm of the NRA. And they basically ran NRA TV. Um, they had this huge contract. They're now in a huge lawsuit if you thought followed this whole dispute with the NRA. But after McQueen reached out, they wanted to talk about being a personality on TV. It was going to be a really huge break for me. It was exactly what I wanted to be doing. And they flew me down. They did a whole day's worth of interviews. And it was kind of like moving forward. And then they reached out and they said, um, I think Trump had just clinched the nomination at that point. And they were like, we need you to come on and do a couple of test runs talking about why it's so important to vote for Trump for the Second Amendment. And I was like, yeah, I cannot. Um, and I, I want to say, like, I think probably because it was Trump, like, had it been like Bush or something, like, maybe it would have been a little bit harder to say no to that. But to me, I was so disgusted by Trump. I was so just livid about his language towards immigrants. It was just a line in the sand that for me, like, I was yeah. not going to cross. There was no way in hell I was voting for that guy. And I, and I thought he was terrible for the Second Amendment. And I was just like, this is a huge thing to turn down. I understand that like when I say no, that's going to be me turning it down, but like I cannot do it. And, and so I passed it up and I will say that being principled has served me well. It has meant slower career growth. It has meant a lot more work behind the scenes to have the career I have now, but I'm so glad that I didn't do it because you can sell out really fast um, and have nothing to show for it. You know, a year or two later, I think oftentimes people who do that really become sort of grifters and they'll say anything and they lose their credibility and they really don't end up having an actual impact in, in the real world. And so um, I, I've, I feel like that has always actually served me well. And, and moral of the story is NRA ended up kind of having this huge collapse about a year or two later. They've been in and NRA TV got shut down. They've been suing Akron McQueen ever since. They're basically bankrupt. They're a corrupt organization. And they deserve to die. But like, had I gone there, you know, it probably would have been for nothing uh, at the end of the day, maybe if maybe a couple, you know, 100,000 Twitter followers. But I think that people need to remember that you can get cheap, short wins in politics. But if you want to have real impact over the course of your life, it's better to be principled and and take the slow road. Awesome. Well, I think if you, if you read Ayn Rand, oh, go ahead, Ben. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if you read Ayn Rand, you know, that's the moral of like the fountainhead, like uh, integrity doesn't pay out as fast, but it pays out the most. 
Um, and I think that you're betting on the right horse. I think that this movement will grow consistently and the people who are getting in here um, on the front end are going to reap the benefits of that, which is not the point, but I think that that's going to happen. I think that's absolutely right. I think momentum's trending in our side. I know it often feels like we're not winning, but I, I've seen it. I've seen the culture moving. I've seen, you know, political ones shifting and, and we've got to play the long game. And I really do believe that, you know, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the the moral arc of history is on the side of justice. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be doing this work. But I think we're going to win. And, and I feel really good about the leadership and the talent that's increasingly being attracted to our work. 100%. I, I've been in this movement for almost 15 years, believe it or not, and I've seen it as well, how much it's completely night and day from how it was back then. The, the momentum's obviously on our side, and it's just so consistent. Um, but sorry, Bootleg, go ahead, man. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I was going to thank her for coming on. And, uh, you know, it, uh, I know everybody's got a busy schedule. And I'm glad everybody could make it today. And uh, um, did you want to plug anything, you know, tell people where they can find you, where they can find your new organization and all that? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I love the show, love the social media content, and really appreciate the work both of you guys are doing behind the scenes uh, at your local level as well. It's so important. Um, if people want to check out BASE, they can go to base-politics.com. That is the official content creation hub. There's also a locals channel attached to it if people want to get behind the scenes stuff with me and Brad and support our work. And then as far as social media, you can find me literally everywhere. My handle is usually Hannah D. Cox on those platforms. Hannah Danielle Cox, you can't find that, but I should pop up. I would love to connect with people. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on, Hannah. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, I guess we'll call it. And uh, Hannah's not a real libertarian. Oh, she's <laughs> sorry man all right guys we will see you next week uh i don't know when this show's airing we'll see you whenever we see you but you're not a real libertarian love y'all peace <laughs>